Good morning, everyone. Okay, if you could turn your Bibles or your to your bulletins to Ephesians um, chapter 2, we'll start at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. But it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is, the, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I was told by a choir director you're supposed to get up in the morning and stretch your vocal cords and try to hit the high notes. So thanks, Dan, for uh, giving us that exercise there, stretching out on those high notes, um, celebrating 500 years of Martin Luther nailing those uh, 95 theses on the door of uh, Wittenberg Chapel, October 31, 1517. This is sermon number three. There's going to be one more. Uh, October the 29th, uh, we will have uh, Bobby and Sandy Jenks with us. They're missionaries to Venezuela. And uh, their plan was to be in Venezuela right now, but as you know, Venezuela's got some real problems. So uh, I asked them to talk to us about what's going on in Venezuela, uh, talk to us about uh, their ministry in Venezuela and what, what's happening with uh, the people in Venezuela, and then also to bring the message. So that's October the 29th. Um, and next week, with regard to Martin Luther, we're going to be talking about all the little, the little things that he brought into and changed the church, such as uh, the priesthood of all believers. Um, Martin Luther was training to be a lawyer, and uh, when he was uh, frightened in a thunderstorm, he, he, he prayed out, St. Anne, help me. I'll become a monk and uh, Anne, the grandmother of Jesus, uh, the mother of Mary, was the patron saint of minors. Patron saint of minors. His father was a minor, so he prayed to Saint Anne. And the idea at that time was, if you wanted to do something righteous, you had to go to the church. You had to be a monk, or you had to be a nun, or you had to do what the priest told you to do. That was a righteous act. Uh, Luther's the one who changed that called the priesthood of all believers. And part of the priesthood of all believers means that lawyers are serving God. The, the idea is, is that everyone serves God in the, in, in the profession or whatever work they're doing. Uh, there is no righteous deeds. It's not more righteous to be a monk than to milk a cow. And so Luther would say, God milks cows. And it transformed work. That is part of the Protestant work ethic, that everything you do and all the work you do is pleasing to God, and God loves it uh, just as much as what the preacher is doing or the priest is doing. All of these are righteous deeds. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Martin Luther transformed music, wrote a number of hymns himself, and uh, so the way, the way we do music today is because of Martin Luther great tradition of uh, music from the Lutheran Church, and uh, the composer Bach is in that tradition. He, uh, he was uh, 
an organist in a Lutheran church. And uh, Luther also transformed the way we do our services, emphasizing sermon. That's because of Martin Luther. And he also brought marriage back to the clergy. I'm thankful to Martin Luther. <laughs> he, brought, he brought marriage back to the clergy, and uh, he felt that he himself should get married. And uh, when he did get married, I'll talk about his marriage next week. When he did get married, he said he got married, um, first of all, be, to please his father, and secondly, to spite the Pope. And uh, I, I told my wife, I said, that's why Martin Luther got married. She goes, well, I guess there could be worse reasons to get married. <laughs> it turned out to be a marriage of love. And so we'll talk about that next week and, and how those things can be practical for us today. Uh, today I wanted to talk about uh, maybe the two most important aspects uh, that we are saved by grace alone and through faith alone. Our salvation, we're declared righteous in God's sight by grace alone. That's unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. It, it comes from the generosity of God. It's something that he gives to you. And some individuals define it as God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, uh, we're, that, that, that's the basis of our salvation. And how do, how do we grab hold of that? It's through faith. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't have to achieve it. There are not deeds that you do to, get the, to, to, to earn your salvation. It's by faith alone. So that's what we're going to talk about today. If you go to the next slide. So these are the five planks of the Reformation. Uh, sola fide, sola gratia, sola scripture, by, by scripture alone. Solus Christus, that it's on the basis of Christ's work alone. And soli deo gloria, it's to the glory of God alone. Next slide. Oh, that's small. <laughs> my, my glasses aren't even going to help me because my glasses are for reading and not for distance. Turn around. Hey, <laughs> you can't hear me if I turn around. So October 31, that's, that's kind of that decisive date when he writes the 95 Theses. And uh, in uh, 15, 1521, he is finally, uh, he is condemned and he's also ex he's excommunicated. He, and then he's condemned by the emperor. So the emperor puts a price on his head, and anyone can kill him and uh, earn the money for killing Luther. And so Luther's prince kidnaps him. Luther is riding home to Wittenberg, and on the way home to Wittenberg, a number of bandits come and they grab Luther, and uh, he is uh, in a cell, he's in a castle somewhere, and he is there for a year, ten months to a year. And while he is there, he uh, translates the uh, Bible into German. Uh, it takes him three months to translate from the Greek New Testament into German. And uh, that transforms the German language. That then becomes the basis of the German language. Um, is Cornell here today? Cornell is not here today. Uh, Cornell was here last, last week. Cornell is from Germany. 
and he told me that they still use Luther's German Bible. It's written in high German, and uh, and he says uh, he learned he learned it as a kid. Um, Luther doesn't just stick with that Bible that he translates in 1522. He actually works on it every week for the rest of his life. Every Wednesday and Thursday, uh, he asks his compatriots to come to his house, and every Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, they work on translating the Bible into German, improving it, uh, what are better ways to say it. And so it goes through a number of editions until his death in 1546. I think he does the Old Testament in the mid-1530s. Um, the, bottom, the bottom thing there, when Tyndall flees England, um, he wants to actually translate the Bible into English. And uh, Henry VIII uh, does not want that to happen, and so he wants to kill him. And so he goes to Germany, and it's actually in... Uh, in uh, he works along with Luther to translate the Bible into English, and actually many of the English expressions come from Luther through Tyndale, through Tyndale to the King James, and through the King James into our language today. Words like uh, scapegoat is a, is, a, is a word made up by William Tyndale to explain something in the Bible. We still use that word scapegoat today, um, and that... Uh, originally comes from Tyndale working with Luther. If you go to the next slide. Oh, by the way, uh, Tyndale eventually goes to Holland to work on the Old Testament. And while he's in Holland, agents of Henry VIII find him and uh, arrest him, try him. They strangle him, and then they burn him. And, uh, of course, they burn the ashes so that you cannot be resurrected. Now, with regard to by faith alone and through grace alone, Luther takes the sacraments down from seven to two. And he says the sacraments are useless unless you have faith. The Roman Catholic Church at the time says you don't have to have faith. You just have to do the sacraments. So you come and baptize the baby. There doesn't actually have to, have, doesn't actually have to be faith in the baby. It does good for the baby. It's relied on the faith of the godparents. If you just go through all of the sacraments, just do them, God's grace is given to you apart from faith. In fact, Luther is condemned for saying that it's only by faith alone that the sacraments are any good to you. And he, he comes to the place where he, he thinks there's only two sacraments. Two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table. He says that's all he can find in the Bible. Well, he's condemned for that too. The best defense against Luther is written by Henry VIII. And Henry VIII writes a book in response to Luther, and he gives it to the Pope. And uh, if I can remember the name of the book, Assertio Septum Sacramentatum, I think. Um, the, the defense of the seven sacraments. And he gives that to the Pope, Henry VIII does, and he writes it in 1522. The Pope loves the book. And so he gives Henry VIII the title, The Defender of the Faith. Imagine, Henry VIII, The Defender of the Faith. 
Um, Luther actually writes her book back. He writes a book back to Henry VIII. <laughs> and after he writes the book back to Henry VIII, Thomas More writes a book back to Luther, uh, defending the seven sacraments. Um, but Luther, his writings are so widespread. Everyone is reading them. Henry VIII is reading them. They're reading them in, the, reading them in England. Uh, very influential. In fact, uh, during Luther's lifetime, 25% of all the books that are sold in Europe are written by Luther. He is the first best-selling author. And uh, quite striking how this just disseminates across, across Europe. Um, now, the, the aftermath of the Defender of the Faith written by Henry, uh, he wants to get a divorce. The church says you can't divorce. He actually sends to Luther, Luther, can I get a divorce? <laughs> Luther says you can't get a divorce, but you can take a second wife. He says, he looks in the Bible and he sees, well, polygamy is an option, but divorce is not. That does, that does Henry VIII no good. So what he does is he declares himself the head of the church. That's the Church of England. The monarch is still the head of the Church of England. Imagine, it's bad enough that the Pope is the head of the church. Now you have Henry VIII as the head of the church. Right? Craziness. At least the Pope is elected. Um, so if you, it, even to today, Queen Elizabeth is still called the defender of the faith. The Pope took the title away. English Parliament gave it back to the, back to the monarch. Um, Queen Elizabeth, probably a believer, uh, claims to believe in Jesus Christ. Prince Charles is not and claims that when he becomes the king, he will no longer be the defender of the faith. He wants to change the title to the defender of faith. The defender of faith. One more thing before we look at uh, the Bible. The first communion service in Wittenberg, where people partake of the, of the, of the uh, wine occurs in 1522, and Luther is still hiding out. He is not there. And so Karlstadt is, uh, is the priest, and uh, he tells the people that he is going to give them the wine, and he is going to do the Mass in German, and he's going to do it on New Year's Day. And he is told, if you do it on New Year's Day, you will be arrested, and the service will be stopped. So Christmas Eve, he lets it out around the town that he's going to do it the next day. So Christmas Day, 1522, 2,000 people show up for that Mass. That's 80% of the town. The town's 2,500 people. 2,000 people show up. And for the first time in their lives, they hear the service in German and they hear the Mass in German. Um, at that time, people had mystical views of, of the bread. And the priest would put it in your mouth, and he would put it in your mouth so that you wouldn't touch it and desecrate it. And people sometimes would not chew it. They would actually take it home in their mouth, and then they would take it home and they would grind it up and put it in, in water for someone who was sick, 
and give it to a sick person thinking that it would make them better. Or sometimes they would sprinkle it on their garden thinking it would make their garden grow. That first service in Christmas 1522, one man, as he's given the bread, he is so scared, trembling, because he's touching it for the first time. He drops it on the floor, and he's too afraid to bend over and pick it up. Um, emphasis on by faith, by faith. If you go to the next slide. So by faith alone, here is a key scripture passage. Galatians chapter 2, written by the Apostle Paul. Remind you again, uh, Galatians, the first book written by Paul, written 50 A.D. Uh, this is uh, 20 years or less after the death of Jesus. And every historian believes Paul writes Galatians. Okay? Every credible historian believes Paul writes Galatians. No doubt about it. We know that a person is not justified, that means declared righteous. We know a person is not declared righteous or justified by works of the law. So by picking up the, the law and doing what it says, you're not righteous by doing that. But by faith in Jesus Christ, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He says it over and over again. You can't do it and be declared righteous. You have to believe God. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's when he declares you righteous. If you go to the next slide. Romans 1.17. Um, verse 16 says, uh, boy, I get in trouble when I quote it, but let me try to quote it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it a righteousness of God is revealed. Now, I'm not quoting verse 16. I'm quoting verse 17 i got to look it up. If all else fails, open your Bible. Thank you very much for the help. <laughs> Making me look bad. Okay, yes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. The Greek text actually literally says, from faith unto faith. And that's the way we used to translate it. For some reason, English, they don't use the word unto anymore. That's what they tell me. I still like that it seems simple to me, from faith unto faith. But they tell me today you can't use the word unto, people don't use it. So uh, from faith, by faith, from first to last. It starts there and it ends there. That's, that's what it, that's what it all, all of it is done by faith. Right? Righteousness that comes to us and we believe and it comes. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, writing 
quoting the prophet Habakkuk. Go to the next slide. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. This is in your bulletin. By grace alone. We're going to talk about this passage for a little bit. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated, with us, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Go to the next slide. Okay, what are the subjects, the verbs, and the direct objects? Remember that grade 8 English class where you had to find the verbs and the... Uh, hated it. Love it today. <laughs> Love it today. You have to do this sometimes with your Bible. This is one long sentence. Notice, notice the subject. God is the subject. God is doing the action. What is He doing? Three things. Three verbs. He made us alive and He raised us up and He seated us. That's what He's done. Made us alive, raised us up, and seated us. Stop for a second. The first one. He made us alive. What is that? God made us alive? He is not talking about your birth. He is not talking about your creation. He is talking about your spirituality. He has made you spiritually alive. That's what He's talking about. He is making us spiritually alive. The old King James, I think, says quickened or quickeneth. Making us spiritually alive. Um, go to the next slide. What do we bring that He makes us spiritually alive? Notice, when we were dead in transgressions. We're spiritually dead. We're full of sin. That's where we're at when He makes us alive. So what do we bring to the table? All we bring to the table is sin, sin. If you go to the next slide. So why does God do what He does? Why does He make us alive? And why does He seat us with Christ? And why does He raise us? And I've got a number of things highlighted. Because of His great love for us. And love where He acts for what is best for us. That's love. Giving us what is best. God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is a feeling word, and it has to do with pity. And here's my best illustration of mercy. When I was a boy, we had two dogs. People always ask me, Did you do you have pets? Because I don't seem to like cats very much. Cats aren't pets. Dogs are pets. 
Cat, cats are mouse catchers. We had we had two dogs. We had a we had a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. <laughs> what a combination! We weren't trying to breed them either. A Great Dane and a Chihuahua, and um, across the street from us, uh, the people across the street had a German Shepherd, and their German Shepherd was a mean dog. It was never let off the chain. And it was never taken for a walk. Uh, it was mean. And our little Chihuahua was friendly. You know what happened. The little Chihuahua ran across the street to play with the German Shepherd. And the German Shepherd bit it. And tore up all the bottom of it. And uh, remember bringing the dog home. And your heart just goes out for your pet. And uh, I remember my parents saying to the vet, whatever it takes, we'll pay the cost to fix our little dog. Do you like that, Brent? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Brent, Brent, Brent's a vet. He likes that. That's pity. That's mercy. Mercy is when you see someone's in a terrible situation and your heart goes out to them and you want to do something. That's mercy. And that's why God saves us. He looks at us and He goes, that's pitiful. Something's got to be done to help them. And so He sends His Son into this world to help us because He sees the desperate situation that we're in. Okay, that's mercy. Uh, go on. He, uh, he made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. And then he's got a little phrase in there. It's by grace you have been saved. And it's got those little uh, hyphens on the outside. This is, this is something that's inserted into the text. And he inserts it because he says, God has made you alive. And then right at, he has to insert, it's by grace you've been saved. He inserts that right after that. In other words, grace is that unmerited favor. God is now giving you something, and it's not deserved. Grace. It's by grace you've been saved. Uh, you go to the end of the passage, he also shows you that this is the ultimate reason why God does something, so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So that when we get to heaven, and we're all in heaven, we'll go, hey, this is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God that has done this. If you go to the next slide. Same passage. He says, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the basis of our salvation and the basis of Him, of him making us alive and bringing us into His family again by grace. Unmerited favor. Don't deserve it. He gives it. How do we appropriate it? Through faith. By believing. Asking Him for it. 
Notice that the faith, he even says, this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. Notice the 10th verse there, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Again, showing this is, this is from God. Okay, go to the next slide. What about our works? Uh, notice what he says here about works, or the deeds that we do, the good things that we do. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. So you have not achieved it, you have not earned it, you've not done anything for it. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Deliberately designed by God this way, when we go to heaven, no one is going to say, I'm here, look what I did. Boy, I really achieved some great things. I pulled myself up the rope and I made it to heaven. I like the illustration N.T. Wright gives. N.T. Wright goes, our works, trusting in your works is like a man taking a little stepladder into a 20-story building and getting on the elevator and going up the elevator and also going up the stepladder at the same time, and when he gets to the top floor, he goes, see, I did lift myself up. Uh, you didn't do anything, really. Notice the last verse there, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, where do our good works come into this? They come in after our salvation. After we're part of the family of God, and after we're right with Jesus Christ, notice he makes us, and the purpose why He saves us is so that then we can do good works. That's why He saved you. If, if you're not busy doing good works, the whole reason why He saves you is being missed. He does it to the praise of His glorious grace, but He also does it so that we can do good. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And notice, God prepared in advance for us to do. And God has something that He wants you to do. He's got something He wants me to do. And so get busy doing what God wants you to do, the good works that He has prepared for you. And if you don't do it, you miss out. And God's going to get somebody else to do it. My father-in-law used to say that all the time. He was a preacher. If you go to the next slide. What about our works? Where do they come into it? I've got two more passages. Just trying to put this together. What, 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 what do my good deeds have to do with my salvation? Galatians 5. This is the Apostle Paul again. The only thing that counts is faith. Notice, expressing itself through love. In other words, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, I should be able to see your faith by your love. And if I don't see your love, maybe you don't have the faith. Because the kind of faith that saves you is also the kind of faith that produces love in a person. So if you're just miserable all the time and you can't stand people, there's a problem. Is this really faith? Or as James chapter 2 says, faith 
without deeds is dead. It's not faith at all. And the, and the illustration he uses in James chapter 2 is when you see somebody who is destitute and needs help and you don't do anything to help them. And he goes, that's not faith. He says, I'll show you by my faith by my deeds. And faith without deeds is dead. Well, this morning, first of all, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and what God can do in your life? Or are you trusting in your good deeds as the basis of your right standing with Christ, with God? We are saved by faith alone, by grace alone. Secondly, is your faith real? Is your faith real? You should be able to see your faith by the, by the deeds that you do, by the love that you have for other people. And if there's no love for other people, I think you're supposed to question, do I really have faith? Maybe I've got to go back to square one and find out, do I really believe in God and do I really trust in Jesus? Because if I believe in God and trust in Jesus, I should have a changed life. If he makes me alive spiritually, if I've been made alive spiritually, there should be a difference. Does that make sense? Now, as a pastor, let me tell you, for me, the number one doubt I have about Christianity, number one doubt for me as a pastor, is sometimes I'm not sure if we're seeing the changed lives that we should see. If we're being made spiritually alive and we're different than someone who is spiritually dead, we should be really different. Shouldn't we? I think we should be. So let's make sure that we've got a faith, trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, but that is proved by our love and by our works. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father.